I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello. Sometimes people say Mondays are a slow news day, just a wash-up from the weekend. Well, Monday the 13th of November is shaping up to be more than that, certainly in the UK. The Prime Minister has sacked the Home Secretary and whistled in a former Prime Minister, David Cameron, to be Foreign Secretary. We're recording at 10.15. Who knows what will happen in the rest of the day? I'm James Harding. I'm joined by Basha Cummings, Giles Wattell and Rory Stewart, who knows a fair bit about British politics and political podcasting. Welcome, Rory. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And welcome to the news meeting. Extra police were on duty around the cenotaph in Whitehall, where there were scuffles just before the Armistice Day ceremony involving far-right counter-protesters. 105 arrests have been made. Does the Home Secretary have your full backing and full confidence? I've been I said to you, I've been The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has been sacked. Replaced as Home Secretary by James Cleverley. David Cameron has just walked up the street and gone into 10 Downing Street. I don't know, but I think that means he's going to be the new Foreign Secretary. David, David Cameron? Cameron? What? <laughs> I was not expecting okay. that! Uh, Rory, a lot of the time in journalism, actually in politics too, people say that you don't have to be good, you just have to be lucky. Uh, we feel rather fortunate to have you here today, a few weeks back when we asked you to come and join us, not least to talk about your book, Little Did We Know What Would Happen This Morning. Um, being impatient, which I know is a little off-brand, just your snap thought, sacking of... Well, I, th- I think s- snap thoughts is to understand that there are two things happening. One of them is that it's the right thing to do when you're fighting for the sanity and the future of the Conservative Party because Suella Bravman increasingly represents a version of the European populist right. And if she was allowed to continue and run hard in a leadership, she would be dragging the party over to a much more sort of populist right-wing position than it's already in. But the corollary of that is that there's a significant risk for the Prime Minister which is that she will become, for some factions of the Conservative Party membership, a martyr. And this particular issue, which is that she will be perceived to have been fired for being critical of Islamists on marches criticizing Israel, um, will make some of her supporters feel that she was doing the right thing and potentially strengthen both her ability to tear Rishi Sunak's coalition apart and also strengthen her ability to run to be the next leader. And your quick take on the Cameron appointment? I think Cameron appointment is is smart because it's a good power play to show that you can bring in a former prime minister as your foreign secretary. I mean, it makes you look big as a prime minister to have someone who was prime minister for seven years working for you. It also signals seriousness, it signals um, a move to moderation. I mean, Cameron was, of course, associated with a more left-wing tradition of the Conservative Party, so he's replaced someone on the right with someone on the left. 
But it also carries risk because David Cameron um, has been, of course, caught up in a lobbying scandal not very long ago. We still have to go through everything that happens when you become minister of the member of the House of Lords on declaring your finances. And he's also a figure who the party respects, but the right of the party has a real problem with. Well, let's get into all of that. Basha, what do you want to talk about this morning? I want to talk about the El Shifa hospital, specifically in Gaza, and what's happening, what's been happening there over the last three days. And not, I mean, initially, when I was, when we were talking about how we would approach this, we talked that maybe we would look at it in, in, combination with the effect that it's had on the hostage negotiations. Actually, I think it's worth just stopping and looking very specifically about what we know that's happening there over the last three days. Charles? Well, I was going to talk about the question of Suella Braverman's fate, since that's been resolved. I'm here largely as a spectator, but I will chip <laughs> in however I can. Well, it feels to me as though this is one of those stories, Rory, where you have the question of Sunak and the appointments, you do have the splits within the party. You're actually getting some questions about tensions in the West, Macron, the rest over the response. So I feel like there's a fair bit Mm -hmm. to go at. And given that we actually originally asked you to come in to talk about the book and the fundamental reform to politics that's needed, politics on the edge, we're going to do a special bonus episode where we just talk about that and try and ask ourselves less on-the-day questions, but the bigger, longer-term questions for British politics. But why don't we start with where we are today? Let's just pursue the Cameron appointment a bit further, because, Rory, you knew him well, I suppose. He was the one who originally interviewed you for a job to become an MP. He was the one who, in some ways, uh, extended your... uh, uh, Long period, some would say, uh, on the back benches in more junior roles. What's your read on him? So he's a very, very uh, obviously polished media performer of a certain style. He's somebody who was very much a product of the 90s. I mean, you need to understand him as somebody who basically entered professional life at the time the Berlin Wall came down. And was a professional politician from his early 20s onwards. And that that meant that he's very much part of the sort of Blair center ground tradition. Blairite in the way that he communicates, Blairite also in the way that he thinks about foreign policy. He was very much somebody who found it impossible to ultimately criticize the Iraq or Afghan wars, continued to vote with the Labour government on those wars, voted with them initially and didn't come out against them even when he was leader. And in Libya, and then again in Syria, tried to get involved in interventions which again seemed to be right out of the uh, that playbook. He failed in Syria because the, the party rebelled, but in Libya he, he led that intervention. He's somebody who was again part of that generation and being pro-China. And very much uh, he and George Osborne were about reaching out to China, cozying up to China. So the question really for him as foreign secretary, is to what extent is he able to adapt to a very, very different world from the world in which he developed his political instincts, that world up to 2005 when he became party leader? Charles, what do you think? I mean, Rory's right. He points out pro-China, obviously staunchly Remainer. Mm -hmm. Libya, Syria, 
fiercely anti-Muslim brotherhood, seen to be pro-Israel. He brings with him his own foreign policy, which is quite different in many ways from the foreign policy that we've seen, certainly under Boris Johnson and to an extent under Rishi Sunak. What does that mean in terms of the way in which the country understands where this government thinks it stands on the world? It could be that the prime minister is is actually going to let the foreign Commonwealth Development Office run UK foreign policy. As you say, he comes with his own set of, uh, with his worldview, with his own set of policies. Um, and who knows what the converse, how the conversation went in Downing Street this morning. But um, it would be interesting if Cameron had said, if, if I take this job, you'll have to let me do it. And Sunak said, well, I've got enough on my plate. Go ahead and do it. But his immediate preoccupation is going to be Israel-Palestine, right? And as you say, he is schooled in that. But the signals, the signals which I've had a very quick look at, are sort of contradictory. When he left in 2016, uh, the Netanyahu was prime minister then and described him as a true friend of Israel. He had, however, before that, argued in his typical articulate way for a two-state solution, even though already Netanyahu um, was trying to put that in the rearview mirror. Uh, he had tried to criticize illegal settlement building, to which Netanyahu responded that Cameron seemed to have forgotten a few basic facts about Jerusalem. Um, and compared with his then deputy prime minister, Nick Clegg, he, he was hawkish in support of, of Israel. It, it's hard to know now whether there's going to be a change in the UK government position on humanitarian pauses versus uh, ceasefires, but that's the immediate question. How do you think it lands Basher in the politics of this, in the domestic politics for Labour? Well, it seems like it's a bit of a gift to Keir Starmer. And equally, you think, and it's a point you made just before we came in here, which is surely he's just going to have to talk about Brexit all the time. He's just going to be asked all the time what his position is about the EU. And so it feels like we I mean, it feels like we're just going to go back into a tangle <laughs> over that at a time when, you know, you, you'd think that Labour can see a sort of clear run to the next election Cameron, I think, slightly is, yeah, give, gives them a bit of strength in where they're headed, I think. Rory, there's a passage in the book about your appointment as International Development Secretary. How much of a meaningful conversation will there have been between Cameron and Sunak on what kind of foreign secretary he wants the former PM to be? Well, well I mean, one, of the, one of the points I make in Politics on the Edge is that traditionally, at least over the last few years, there's been almost no conversation between a prime minister and a cabinet minister that they've appointed. They're very short and cursory. Usually these reshuffles are about the media moment of saying who's got into which slot and getting through them as quickly as possible and rebalancing the party and trying to deal with the press fallout. There's very little opportunity for what you would normally have in a job. As you say, um, James, if you were appointing someone, you'd probably want to sit down for an hour and talk about what you were hoping they were going to do and follow up with them occasionally. That very rarely happens. Maybe a little bit different uh, if you've got a former prime minister with strong views. And David Cameron may have sat there and said, OK, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Equally, he may well have thought, well, I know how this goes. I sat at the other end of the desk any number of times. This guy wants to get this done in three minutes and move on to the press room. So he would have been, he might have just been polite and got out the door. I just wanted to pick up on one thing you said, Rory, the suggestion that this looked strong, a powerful decision from Sunak's point of view. I think a lot of people won't 
will say, won't they, it draws attention more than anything to the fact that the bench is now very thin. There's nobody else scraping the barrel. You, you Like, really? You have to go back to him and give him an instant peerage? Uh, nobody else? Yeah, well, I mean, Gordon Brown, of course, did this at the end of his time. I mean, he brought in Mandelson in the same way and made him a cabinet minister and put him straight in the House of Lords, did the same with Mark Mallet Brown. This was this famous thing called the GOATS, the Government of All Talent, where he used the House of Lords. it was the greatest of all time. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to to all, bring all these GOATS in and did it because clearly he thought that... Um, Roger Federer was unavailable. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> thought, thought that the, um, the, the, the Labour backbenchers in those days, well, even with the huge majority, was not enough to provide it. I mean, I'm sympathetic towards the general idea that MPs are a pretty limited gene pool and it's pretty desperate endlessly having to find your senior cabinet ministers out of whoever's left standing after 13 years in administration. So I think I think it's it's a smart, well-judged move. I mean, it seems you've produced somebody who seems at least serious, credible, mature, senior into the position. You've allowed cleverly to move sideways into Home Secretary and you've probably... Possibly, I don't know, you guys are much more media experts than me, but you've possibly changed the whole media conversation from focusing purely on Suella Braverman sacking onto the question of, wow, isn't this weird? We've just brought in a prime minister as foreign secretary. How long would something like this have been in the works? Because presumably Cameron didn't just get a call this morning saying, please, can you come to me? Absolutely, yeah. You'd never take the risk of bringing someone in who hadn't already agreed to take the job. So they will have been thinking for a long time. Hmm about whether they could bring Cameron in in some position or another. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean that they had foreign secretary down. But the general idea that Rishi Sunak must have been developing a friendship and a relationship that key advisors around Rishi Sunak uh, could be the chief whip, could be other people who are close to him were saying, well, we use somebody like Cameron in a senior position. One son is they were certainly talking about it last week. It also makes sense of the way in which Sunak handled Braverman over the weekend, which is, you know, that bit where you know you're breaking up. You don't need to talk about why you're breaking up. So you just have these cursory conversations. That makes sense of the fact there were no real discussions about the Times article, no discussion about tents. But but I wonder whether um, it wouldn't have been uh, interesting, the timing. I mean, what would have happened if he'd fired her as soon as the Times article came out? What what was the calculus? If, if, as you say, James, I'm sure you're right, this decision would have been made earlier. What's the advantage of doing it on Monday morning as opposed to doing it Thursday? Because, of course, Twitter's full of people saying, brave would have been to fire her last week. Firing her now is just, you know, accepting the inevitable. Don't they have the evidence of the protest now? They've got the evidence of Saturday, and, which unfolded. And, in a and way the risk, it. presumably, that they're worried about is that she might have been vindicated if it was yeah. a hugely violent demonstration. Yes. Or worse, he's made a martyr of her and doubles the quote-unquote counter-protesters on the other side. Mm-hmm. Can we just park the bus for a minute, though, Rory, on Rishi Sunak's judgment in all of this? Because there's a personnel element to it, independent uh uh, operational independence of the police, all of those things. But there's also just a really odd question about what does Rishi Sunak believe? You're now going to have a leave prime minister with a remain foreign secretary. As you say, you've essentially got an element of Sunak who in the last few weeks feels like a person who's been more on the uh, side of the motorist, a little more sceptical of lockdown. You've got Cameron, who, as you say, is much more in the sort of 
Blairite right. globalist yep. tradition. Yep. Who are the conservatives now? Who's Rishi Sunak? So I think Rishi Sunak has, has two warring instincts. One of them is, you're right, he's, he's a Brexiteer. And in that sense, he was on the right of the party. But in every other instinct, you know, he's a highly educated, Goldman Sachs working, Stanford Business School educated member of that same global elite. And Cameron was very fond of him. And, you know, one of the great quotes was uh, in the run up to Brexit of Cameron saying, if we've lost Rishi, we've lost this referendum. So I think Rishi Sunak has wants a more moderate vision of the party. He wants people like Cameron, you know, even potentially people like me to be members of the party. He, he, he didn't see this Brexit standoff as fully endorsing a kind of right-wing populist Farage-style party. I think he saw his move um, probably more in the way that, you know, someone like Michael Gove did, who voted Brexit, yeah. And why has that happened? Why has Brexit been for so many people married with a social conservatism that didn't seem it was part of the proposition in 2015-16? Because Brexit became the most divisive issue in British politics. I mean, it polarized people and it became the anti-establishment move. It's the classic populist move. It was taking on the economists, taking on the treasury, taking on the senior government ministers. And once you've put yourself into the populist camp, challenging other so-called conventional wisdoms becomes part of it. You end up fighting about transgender and statues. You end up fighting about immigration. You end up fighting about climate. You end up fighting about COVID. Uh, and this is because a lot of the playbook that Suella Brahman and others sense is something that echoes Orban, echoes Trump, echoes a whole global right-wing populist movement, with which I guess Rishi Sunak, who in many ways is quite kind of socially liberal, is probably quite uncomfortable. And do you think that Michael Gove, Rishi Sunak, even Boris Johnson to an extent, thought that they could do better than that, that they could somehow deliver a take-back-control Brexit, but at the same time, a socially more liberal progressive agenda? Well, they, they will have hoped that at times. But Gove and Johnson are, are of course, um, journalists who made their names in right-wing newspapers writing provocative columns or the right-wing edge of newspapers writing provocative columns. And so they've always, more than Rishi Sunak, enjoyed writing the dramatic op-ed, winding people up, taking on the teachers. And Boris Johnson's now out putting out tweets which are very, very... Um, you know, not particularly balanced. I mean, he's he's come out very, very firmly on one side of the on the Israeli side of the Israeli Gaza discussion at the moment, and he will have also, you know, famously, this is you know, Boris does stuff that Rishi doesn't do, and Boris Johnson, you know, was comparing people wearing burkas to post boxes. He was talking, you know, he's making homophobic slurs about, you know, I mean, that th th that's Boris Johnson has a sort of a finger on the pulse of a kind of right-wing populist, non-politically correct uh, stream in British politics, which I don't think is part of Rishi Sunak's world. Isn't there an argument that not only within domestic politics, but within international politics, this is quite an important and positive step mm. in that here is someone who's got real experience who when they show up in the capitals as they will do, you know, of Riyadh or Cairo or Oman or Ankara, gets a hearing and 
you know, I'm becoming a bigger and bigger fan of Tony Blinken in all of this. But you may now have a US Secretary of State and potentially a Foreign Secretary who are essentially aligned on this big mission to create two states in which two peoples can live equally in a sense of with a sense of their own security, their own prosperity, their own uh, freedoms and dignity. That's quite a positive step in terms of the West's engagement with what's happening in the Middle East. And doesn't Cameron really help Lincoln on that? Yeah, you could see it as uh, a heavyweight brought back in serious times to advocate for a a serious solution to a serious problem. And I'm sure that when Cameron first goes to Paris to meet his opposite number, the president will do a drop by and say, hi, David, good to see you again. There'll be a bit of that. <laughs> do you want to rejoin? <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think to, in my flailing to understand everything um, the, this morning, I come back to a question. How badly does Sunak want to win the next election? Because there are two ways of looking at all this. If he's reading the polls and thinking, I'm not Boris, I know I'm not a rabble rouser, I'm not going to win this, then we're on a glide slope to a, either a, a moderate defeat or a catastrophic defeat. And he's just asking Cameron to do him a favour, do him a solid for nine months. It could be the other way around. It could be the other way around, Charles, which is Cameron gets rehabilitated with only a year-long year commitment. <laughs> Rory's smiling and nodding. I think it's right. I think it's, it's wonderful for Cameron. It's wonderful for David Cameron. I mean, he spent seven years where nobody's really noticed him. It's been very unclear what he's been doing. He was caught up in this lobbying scandal. And this is a wonderful way of uh, reestablishing him, David Cameron, as a statesman. And do we take from that that his, ambitions is, his ambition is to rejoin politics, to become a figure again? No, I don't, I don't think he wants to be Prime Minister again, but I think he wants to be taken seriously as a big, dignified voice. He, he would like people to look at him in the way that people look at Tony Blair or maybe John Major. And he's been struggling to do that. And this is a real chance to put public service in the centre and seem like a kind of a meaningful central mm. figure to be relevant again. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Uh, 
let's go to uh, what's happening in the Al Shifa Hospital. Before we get into the Mm -hmm. understanding of the arguments about it, just tell us what's actually going on. Yeah, well, I I was thinking about why my own sort of perspective on this had changed because I was going to come and talk about Macron's call for for a ceasefire or how what was happening at the hospital played into hostage negotiations. And then I read last night what was actually happening. And it made me think of other instances when, you know, I've been in different newsrooms covering wars, that there are always these moments that, force you to pause and actually take notice of what's happening. We've talked about all of the analysis and the political fallout, but what actually is happening on the ground deserves attention. That was the same with Mariupol, with the bombing of the maternity hospital, the same with October 7th. We had, you know, those were moments that forced you to just understand what was happening. And I think because of what happened with the bombing of the other hospital, al Ahli, where there was a lot of misinformation about you know, where the rocket had come from, I think there's there's been a bit of nervousness to sort of focus in on what's happening at Al Shifa. But from what from what we can tell, um, so Al Shifa is the biggest hospital in northern Gaza and it is a key military objective for the Israelis because it is a huge complex, sprawling complex. They say that Hamas are either taking shelter within the hospital or in tunnels underneath. Um, But it's also geographically important. It's close to the north-south road. Um, So they want to, now that they're on the ground, they want to try and kind of take control around the hospital. Um, But as part of that, the situation has become catastrophic there over the last 72 hours. So um, one of the sort of main... uh, surgeons who's been a a spokesman uh, for lots of what's been happening around uh, the medical facilities, uh, Hassan Abu Sitter, said that they now have no fuel, no electricity, no anaesthetic, no clean water. They're cleaning wounds with chlorine. There's very poor internet. And there is constant gunfire and bombings in and around the area. Uh, They have no blood because the blood bank has been hit. uh, And they have at Al Ahli, which is the only other medical facility that is now still operational, they have three surgeons. Uh, he says we're the only show in town now. Three surgeons. I think the thing that maybe will be cutting through the most today is an image of premature babies being uh, huddled together on beds uh, because the inc- there's no fuel to power the incubators. There's no oxygen for them. There are 39 of them. They've been moved from intensive care because that was hit. Uh, over the weekend, and there is a question now about whether they can be evacuated. But if you know anything about premature babies, you'll know that, uh, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that they will all survive. And then there were reports of sniper fire into the hospital. I haven't confirmed whether that's the case, but other doctors uh, have said that of the 600 remaining patients inside the hospital in Al-Shifa. They've moved them away from the windows and deeper into the building. And I just think it's worth pausing on that. I think it's worth pausing because I think it helps us to set everything else in context. And I I think it is the most important thing. Rory, when you hear that, what do you think Israel should do? What do you think the world should say? Well, I think um, it's a banality, but I think we need to be uh, <laughs> pushing to restrain. I mean, I think insofar as Israel wanted to demonstrate that 
it would react to being attacked insofar as it wanted to signal to Hamas or Hezbollah that if you attack Israel, you're going to get hit very hard. That's been done. That There's no, I think, great benefit to Israel in terms of deterrence, in terms of what it's doing anymore. Instead, every passing day simply fuels the fire of people who wish to portray uh, Israel um, in the most intensely negative light. So, um, and again, there doesn't seem to be any military rationale for, for what's going on here. So I would have thought the time clearly has come to to go for that ceasefire. And I'd, I don't understand quite what it is in Israeli politics which is currently holding that deck. Presumably, it is the continued rage and trauma of those initial attacks, those terrorist attacks, and everything that follows from that. Can we just talk about some of the consequences of the hospital? One of the things that's mm. arisen, Basha, is that Hamas, at least I've read this in the media, saying, look, we are not operating military installations underneath the Al-Shifa hospital. Mm -hmm. The Israeli Defense Force is saying, yes, Hamas is operating those, and then Hamas inviting independent observers in to check. What happens with that? Who are the independent observers, if any? What does the IDF say about that? Or is that just a piece of posturing? I don't know about the in independent advisors. I mean, what I what is clear is that this is becoming a sort of totemic argument between both sides. Hamas are now... There have been negotiations over the release of hostage the hostages. The Guardian reported at the end of last week that there was a proposal for a ceasefire um, and the release in exchange for the release of hostages, which Netanyahu um, turned down reportedly. Um, and late last night, Hamas announced that they would be withdrawing from those negotiations. They had apparently tabled um, that they would be uh, there would be around fifty to a hundred women, children, and the elderly released uh, in exchange for a three to five day pause in fighting, but they've said that given what's happening around Al Shifa, that that is no longer on the table. Um, so I think this this you know. I I keep thinking I find it very hard to talk about, or I find it very complicated to get my head around it because I come back to a point that you made a few weeks ago which was when we were talking about it was very soon after October 7th probably the Monday following where we weren't totally sure what had happened we were only just getting the figures about what happened at the festival and you said no it's really important that we understand the facts here because the time will come when Israel's response will overwhelm the what we remember about this moment and it will be used as further example of Israel overreacting and I think the same logic applies here actually that we have to understand what's happening on the ground so that it, it doesn't get obscured How does all this play out Rory in our politics? Well I think it plays out firstly in understanding that there is a very strong chunk of British public opinion, I don't know how to put a figure on it, but let's say 20, 25% of the public that do not like the vision of hundreds of thousands of people who appear to be um, demonstrating this way, dressed in that way. It, it, it worries them. It makes them think rightly or wrongly about terrorism. It brings out some very unfortunate, probably racist instincts from members of the public. It's important to understand, I think, that that happens. I think it's also true that there is a strong 
perfectly understandable group uh, in the British Jewish community who, again, are terrified about these marches. Now, that may just be that the media is exaggerating or picking people out, but definitely people feel very, very unsettled. Um, at the same time, there is a huge political dimension of, of Muslim public opinion in Britain and in the United States, which swings elections. Biden may lose the key swing state of Michigan by alienating Arab voters. A lot of Labour MPs are very worried that their Muslim constituents are going to turn against them in about 35 key swing seats here in Britain. So it, it, is, it is a very, very political issue and politicians understandably and sometimes irresponsibly but also very understandably migrate towards these opinions and what Suella Bravman says and this is why it's a potential um, problem for Rishi Sunak resonates with quite a lot of people I mean so there will be many people who maybe don't quite agree with what she said about homeless people but don't like seeing tents in the streets there will be many people who we know this from the polls very large majority of people who are very anxious about immigration and boats. And there will be many people who are very troubled by the sights they're seeing in the streets. And and I think part of the problems about dealing with populism is, of course, the problem about do you acknowledge this? Do you recognize that that's going on? And how do you respond to that? And do you think there's any answer to this, the culture of our politics and the nature of the conversation, than a change that Growing up as we did and witnessing what happened on the back of 18 years of conservative government, that although things may not have changed as much as they felt they were changing in 1997, it's just a changing of the guard that's needed to usher in a sense of something different. Yeah, I think it can be very helpful, incredibly helpful in politics to get new fresh blood in. I mean, personally, I think both the conservative and Labour parties are pretty sclerotic. And I'd like a proportional representation to actually bring in more fresh blood from outside. But yeah, shaking things up is important. I also think what Rishi Sunak's doing, although not perhaps as, not quite as clear as I would have liked him to be, but it's helpful. I mean, I think fighting populism is partly about calling it out within, in your own party, taking the political risk, taking the risk that you have a sort of Farage, UKIP, Braverman wing, but confronting it and not allowing your Home Secretary to, to say this. The alternative, of course, is what you see in Israel where essentially Netanyahu, in order to take power, has brought in people like Smotrich and Ben-Gavir, who are genuine racists with incredibly extreme views. I mean, they are river-to-the-sea people. It's just in their case, the river-to-the-sea is, is Jewish, right? Um, so I think that, that, there's an, that there's a very interesting dynamic there. To what extent does one say with a politician, okay, Ben-Gavir, Smotrich have a lot of support and therefore... You know, you understand why they're brought to a coalition, or to what extent do you say, okay, Suella Bravman has a lot of support, but she's got to be cut out. And, and what political risk do you take when you cut out those views? So rather than at the end of this uh, news meeting come up with a running order of what's the most important story, frankly, given so many things are moving so fast, there's an old theory that news meetings are really supposed to be a place where you get together and say, what do we not know now? And so... What is there at the start of this week, Monday the 13th of December, that we don't know now? November. Oh, sorry. Is it November? God, I was already ready to do my Christmas shopping. Uh, what do we not know <laughs> at the start of this week, Monday the 13th of November, not know now? Um, Charles, what do you start this week most wishing to know? 
whether Sunak really wants to win the next election. Rory? I want to know whether there are things that people will find in Cameron's past statements or his finances or the way that he's conducted himself in the last six, seven years, which will create a media story attacking Cameron and therefore undermine what Rishi Sunak's trying to do, which is bring in a credible, mature, senior voice. If it, if that's discredited, that will really weaken the Sunak government. Yeah. Basha? Um, I would like to know whether a ceasefire is possible politically, um, and I would like to know what would have to happen to make that possible. Yeah, I think I'd like to know an extension of both of your things. I'd like to know whether or not Europe now thinks that Britain has the most remain government <laughs> since 2015, <laughs> 16. Probably answer yes. I'm cheating. But the thing that seriously that I would really like to know is I would really like to know what Israel really thinks its military strategy is. I think we talk too much about narrative and not enough about what the military operation is. And I'd also really like to know about the politics, touching on your point about Smotrich and Ben Gvir, of replacing Bibi Netanyahu. Who is going to lead that effort and how will that happen? Because it feels as though if you do believe in a two-state solution, it's really unclear that he's the person to usher that in. Um, that's probably a question for more than just this week, but it's certainly one for this week. Um, Charles and Basha, thank you so much. Rory, thanks so much for coming in. Let's have a separate conversation about politics on the sure. edge, not least the point you just sure. made, which is the fundamental reforms of the political system, PR and the rest. But for now, thank you so much for listening. Rory is going to be recording with Alistair later today. The rest is politics. So if you've listened into this and you really want to get into it, not least I suspect listening to Alistair talk about <laughs> uh, possibly with a touch of glee uh, the circular firing squad that is the Conservative Party. Um, do listen into the rest of its politics. Uh, thank you, Rory, for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you think we've missed some important subjects, as it happens, we all came with different ones before uh, the events of this morning. Please do message us, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com, send us a voicemail or send us an email. Thank you for listening. And as mentioned, Rory and I are sitting down and having a conversation about the book, the future of politics, and a touch of podcasting too. Do tune in. The bonus episode will be live on Wednesday. Tortoise. 